Hey everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of BFF, Black Fat Fashion. I'm your host, Ayana Ishmael, and on BFF, we'll be discussing personal and career journeys at a crossroad between being Black, fat, into fashion, or if you're like me, some resemblance of all three. Today, I'm joined by Jamae Jackson, a Howard University alumna, senior beauty editor for In The Know, and creator of The Blonde Misfit. Hey everyone, as I said earlier, I'm here with Jamay. And first, I really just want you to kind of introduce yourself, do a little, you know, quick synopsis of everything. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. So, what's up, y'all? Um, my name is Jamay Jackson. I am a senior beauty editor and fashion activist. I am a lover of all things bright, beautiful, bodacious, and of course, blonde. And I'm also the founder and editor in chief of theblondemisfit.com. Mm-hmm. So I saw that you went to Howard, but are you originally from D.C. as well? Yes. Born and raised D.C. girl. Love my chocolate city to the death of me. Um, And also shout out to all of my H.U. listeners because we are a mighty and proud people. And uh, I always got to show love to to the HBCU of HBCUs. If y'all upset, worry about it with somebody else. (laughs) That is always a big thing. So were you always kind of set on going to an HBCU? No, actually, I had no inclination whatsoever of thinking of going to an HBCU. Um, Even, I would say, up until the end of my senior year, I was really set on going to um, either NYU or Shenandoah um, or even VCU um, in Virginia because I really, at the time, wanted to pursue musical theater. And I was in a talent competition with my the Fairfax chapter of Omega Sci-Fi. Shout out to the Qs. Um, and they were telling me about Alfred Street Baptist Church, which is a very, very well-known affluent Black church in Alexandria, Virginia, who was hosting an HBCU fair. And so one of the, like, the old Qs, like old, old man, so sweet, was saying, you should go there. You should look in some of the HBCUs. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's not what I want. I, I did not have any plans of staying in D.C., but my mom was like, Jamee, please just go. Just look, just go and look. And I actually was going because I wanted to apply to Hampton because Hampton and Howard were honestly the only two HBCUs that like I knew of very, very well. Mm-hmm. So I took my resume and um, the Hampton line was ridiculously long and the Howard line was really long too. But like, you know, it, it was at the end of the day, they had started to, um, oh, actually I, I didn't even draw the connection that um, the Q chapter was actually hosting a talent show. And so you got, a, you got money for a scholarship. And so that's how I became affiliated with them because I was doing work to try to get scholarships for college. And they said, well, what college are you going to? And at the point I had been undecided. Okay, fast forward back to the fair. So I'm at the fair and the fair is shutting down. And I go over to the Howard desk and I introduce myself um, to Patrick Scott, who is still like a very near and dear friend of mine to this day. And I told him like, you know, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I was interested in. Gave him my resume, gave him a little bit of like my writing clips. And he was like, you know, you come here on a scholarship, right? And I said, so you, are you going to give me a scholarship? Is that what you're saying? And he was like, I can't guarantee anything because you actually missed the scholarship deadline. So now I'm sitting here thinking, so what did you tell me all that for? Like, you know, got my hopes up. And now my little heart is crushed in a sea of like 5,000 people at this HBCU fair. 
Um, so Patrick, <laughs> he took my information and I was able to apply on the spot that day and didn't have to pay a, uh, an application fee. And I think within a week's time, they came back to me uh, at Howard saying that I got in. And then I think maybe within like another week after that, I got on scholarship. And so I ended up really sitting with it for a while thinking, is this what I wanted to do? Is it not what I wanted to do? Um, I'm not going to lie. There were a lot of people in my life who said that I didn't need to go to HBCU, that an HBCU education wasn't going to be as beneficial to me as a more affluent name or a PWI. And these were other Black folk that said this, like, that I know it was coming from an, a genuine place, but I'm really happy that I trusted my gut and my intuition because going to an HBCU was one of the greatest gifts I have ever given myself. And I think especially with today's political climate, it is just really, really nice to know that no matter what's happening and where you go and who you're around, that you can remember the legacy and the beauty of what it is to be Black. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a big thing a lot of people get a lot because I come from my both my parents were HBCU alum but I had never actually looked into going to an HBCU until mm -hmm. my mother was like oh you should like look at one so that's how I ended up at FAMU but I think people hear that a lot because the HBCU education isn't the same when I feel like a lot of people that come from HBCUs are successful and they I think yeah have to go over that yeah we're taking this exact same classes as everybody else the only difference in our core curriculum may be that Whereas other schools may not have an African-American studies requirement, we might have one uh, for freshman year, you might have certain requirements that teach you about like African literature. Or for me, I was an English and Greek double major. So it wasn't just Greek as in just the Greek language, but also seeing how like Greek literature also traveled up through Northern Africa and how you have like, that's why you have certain texts that are in Hebrew versus other texts that are in Greek. And even just the exploration of what that looks like on a, on a bigger scale. So anyone who says that an HBCU experience is not the same, um, they're kind of right. HBCU experience is better just because then after you, because after you get your education, then you're still just surrounded by black excellence 24 seven. And I really think that that is the power of the, of an HBCU. You are around all different types of people that prove to you every single day that black is not a monolith that we can all come from different places of the world, different backgrounds, and we're all here for one unified purpose. And there's nothing else to describe that feeling. Like, yeah, I never get caught up in the PWI versus HBCU debate because honestly, it's not that deep for me. Like I'm happy when anyone, any of us get education and when we grow, but if I ever could tell someone to, I would definitely urge them to at least consider an HBCU. And if you're going to, you should go to the illustrious Howard University. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of want to go back. You know, I meant, I saw that you mentioned English and Greek majors. So how did you kind of get into, obviously English writing is very close, but how did you end up maybe wanting to write fashion and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I've always loved fashion and beauty. Um, I think fashion I was able to pinpoint earlier on in my life because even as a kid, I did not want to dress like everybody else. I hated the idea that somebody could point at your outfit and be like, I know exactly where she got that shirt and where she got them pants and them shoes and all that stuff. So I used to actually ask my father to take me um, into the city and we would go to this place down over on Eastern Market. And it was a little boutique. And I, I laugh at it actually now thinking about it because the lady used to always say, this is the hottest stuff straight from New York. And I was like, oh my God, it's New York. <laughs> like the gag is I live in New York now. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I was young, I was in middle school. 
and the clothes were a little bit more expensive, but I would take the whatever, however much money my dad would give me for it, and I would buy lesser things, but just because I knew that nobody else in the, in the school was going to have it. And so I've always loved fashion, and I've always liked the idea of you can find your identity and you can express that through the clothes. That just paired with my love for writing and research, which has always been in my life. I'm an only child, and so I had to learn how to be creative. I had to learn how to entertain myself. Um, I used to sit at the top of my stairs as a kid and I would write out entire plays and manuscripts and shows and like see it in my head and then write it out on paper. And so I've always been a very creative person. So to see the two of them kind of join together didn't really happen until I got, I went to Howard. Um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do as far as like going into journalism, but I really, really was, was interested in fashion journalism after I was reading people like, Robin Gavon at the Washington Post and Terry Higgins at the Wall Street Journal or Nicole Phelps, who used to be the senior writer for Vogue Runway and Style.com. And I was just like, it is so dope how they're able to like look at clothes, but then they're able to also say that it's more than just clothes. Like there's so much more that goes into it. So that is how I ultimately decided like that is what I wanted to do. I did not have a conventional path in deciding it. It's one of those things that I think everything always works out for everything everything always works out the way it's supposed to. But if I had to do it all over again, the only thing I would have done differently is have gotten affiliated with something like ASME or something that was like for magazine editors earlier on in my college career, because it would have set me up, I think, for a little bit more immediate success when I graduated. Mm -hmm. And so when you're at Howard, did you kind of like play around with your style? Because I know when I got to my HBCU, I was like, wow, people dress up to go to class. So I need to make oh, sure yes. I'm in the same <laughs> range. So did you kind of like explain maybe your style, like if it changed or kind of evolved as you went through college? Yeah, I mean, Howard is, um, I know they've done case studies on this before, but Howard was like the second most fashionable college in, in, in the country right behind NYU, which would make sense because NYU is in the heart of New York City, but it's also huge. Um, I come from the class of Howard where you got dressed and wore your heels to an 8 a.m. class and <laughs> everything was a fashion show. And so I do think that Howard allowed me to take more fashion risks. I had a buzz cut my entire year at Howard. I was blonde and I had a buzz cut. And so I didn't really have to try so hard with the outfit because obviously my head was a, was a was an accessory in and of itself um and even now with my blonde locks when my locks are down like i could have on a burlap sack people just enjoyed my hair so it's really kind of cool to see like how you can even use hair and makeup and stuff as as additional accessories but at howard i've always been someone who loves comfort which is funny because i own a lot of heels and heels that have not served my feet the best <laughs> um but when it comes to actual clothing I really like to feel comfortable I think the beautiful thing at Howard is that because you saw so many different people with different types of style it wasn't like oh this is what's hot and this is what's not and you can't wear this and so there was no like real class system when it came to fashion um everyone could just rock whatever because if you made it if you laced it out then you laced it out so 
that was how Howard kind of influenced that. And then obviously moving to New York influenced it even more than as my career has grown, I've been able to explore with, explore my fashion choices a little bit differently. First of all, um, I wear a lot more designer just because I like these brands. I write about these brands. I talk about these brands. Um, I get to thankfully also support and pour into a lot more black owned businesses. I mean, I'm wearing legendary roots today. I have the kind of dope black woman shirt on. And I also get to explore my style in a way to show people that women who are not a size two or a size four can still look really, really cool. You don't see a lot of people at New York Fashion Week uh, getting photographed if they're beyond a certain size. And it's really disheartening and it's frustrating and it's something that I know the industry has addressed and needs to continue to work on. But as for me, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I can put together an outfit really, really well and show people that like my size 12, 14 is taking up all this space and this beautiful ass clothes. I'm sorry, I don't know. I'm you like on these, <laughs> on these beautiful ass clothing and y'all gonna support and y'all gonna y'all gonna respect me because I just feel like that is just a power, like you know, my power feeling. Most definitely. I love that. Is there like a specific like your go-to outfit that you have? Oh so it yeah, okay. So like anything oversized for the top, I love. I love like button downs, oversized, like to the point that I could kind of like pull it off the shoulder. Um, I don't like tight things on my like top area. I be getting hot, child. I go be going through like my menopause stages. Um, and then honestly, like some tore up, but like still tailored oversized jeans and then a fly shoe, like a really, really fly shoe. And I have so many shoes that have like the sole of the shoe is different. You know, I have a pair of vestments where the entire heel is just made out of coins. Um, I just, I love shoes so much. And I think that they're such a cool accessory. But one thing I, I had to learn when I got to New York is that you're going to be walking a lot. So <laughs> I definitely stepped up my sneaker game. Um, I have quite a few pairs of Jordans and I'm really proud of. And I love just how you can kind of edge feminine with like masculine and, and make it fly. But really, I like comfort. Um, I like comfort. And then I like to get kind of dressed up on the weekends, you know, for brunch, for church, if I'm going to go see my mom. Uh, but other than that, cool, cool, chill, real chill. Mm -hmm. And I know you got your master's in New York City. Yeah, I'm currently finishing up my master's at LIM. Mm -hmm. So um, what was the transition like? I know you said you moved to New York City after Howard. So what was that whole transition like? I know you're from kind of up north, so it wasn't too crazy, but. Well, actually it was because I didn't know anyone in New York. I mean, I knew people as far as like, you know, we went to school together or um, one of my homegirls was the person who actually hooked me up with a room in her grandmother's house up in the Bronx, which is where I stayed before I got a job and when I moved here. And I really had no real plan to come um, for New York other than the fact that I just knew that I needed to come. I knew that I had been kind of, I feel like wasting my time, really meaning I hadn't, I was not walking in the fullness of purpose and just taking the risk and jumping and seeing if the net would appear. And I was tired of it. And so that's how I ended up, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. Even if I don't have anything else figured out. With, <laughs> sorry, I have two puppies who You're always fine. like to do guest appearance. Um, so when I graduated from Howard, uh, I actually did not get, so I graduated in May of 2015. I actually did not get my first 
job, which really was an internship until January of 2016. Mm -hmm. So I tell people all the time, especially people who are young and eager and ready to kind of get out into the field that it may not happen immediately. And in fact, most people notice that it does not happen immediately. There are only but so many jobs that happen. Everyone is graduating in May. Um, and there's just, but so much that can happen. So what I did was during those, however many months, I was working two jobs as a waitress and I was freelancing. Um, I, that's actually how I got started working with Fashion Bomb Daily. I launched the Blonde Misfit. And then so I had now this passion project because I was like, I need a digital portfolio. So I was pouring all of my time and additional funds into building that. And so January 2016, I get an offer to work in the production slash editorial team over at Washingtonian Magazine. And so this was during a time, I would say, while I was there is when like Philando Castile and Alton Serling were murdered. Um, and I realized that working in a newsroom in a news environment just was not what I wanted to do. I did not need to be around people who could not relate to the certain some of the certain struggles that I was going through as a black person in America and still trying to save face. And that was however many years ago. So that prompted me to say, you know what? No, you really are passionate about fashion. You're passionate about beauty. That's what you need to pursue. So I moved to New York in August of 2016. And then I started working at in, in Style Magazine as a video optimizer. So the dope thing about that was, even though I got my foot in the door with video, I actually was sitting next to the plus size fashion market editor. And so she took me under her wing and I would get assignments and I would go into the fashion closet and I would help out with the fashion girls in there. Um, I would help on set with beauty and go into the beauty closet. And that's really kind of how I got to learn about sample trafficking. And it was just a, such a great experience that was cut short because of budget cuts. Mm -hmm. But I think within three, three months of that, that's when I landed at Yahoo. And so I was there at Yahoo. Yahoo got bought out. We came, it was Oath or Verizon, Verizon Media, whatever. They gave me a six-month severance package. I'm like, all right, I'm going to see y'all later. Uh, I'm going to go on and travel the world and do humanitarian work and be great. And then I ended up at BuzzFeed, which is where I was for two and a half years until I recently came back to Verizon Media in a senior beauty editor role. So I started school last summer. Um, at that point, I just was like, I'm in a good spot mentally to go back to school. I was so burned out by the time I graduated from Howard because I was trying to get all my credits in uh, before my scholarship like ended. And... I didn't want, I had always told myself I wasn't going to go back to get my master's unless it was something that I really, really loved and I was really, really passionate about. And so when I found out that LIM offered a business of fashion program, which is a little bit, it is about fashion, but it's technically business application that you can apply in any industry, in any sphere. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And I just tell people that if you ever are thinking about like post-secondary education, really take your time with it you it's it's no rush at all like I waited what four years yeah. before before like three yeah four years to before I went back but I have a 4.0 in in my in my grad school program and I'm like 75 percent done like there is a way to do it in a way that you don't have to feel stressed or that it's an or it's a burden um but really spend time because if you're gonna spend all that money you might as well do it with something that you love 
And um, yeah, so that's that's how we got there. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely has been a lot of venture. So what do you think was the most difficult part about maybe leaving one job and going to the next or having that kind of middle time in between? I think especially when I was younger, that middle time is so terrifying because you don't know how long it's going to last. You think that you're just going to be set up to fail and that you're never going to get your foot in the door and that you're never going to progress. And I look back on that time now and I laugh because I think so often if we really knew how things would work out actually in the end, we would have never stressed in the first place. And so now I try to actually apply that thinking to everything that I go through now because I'm like, the future you is going to look back and be like, yo, why were you stressing? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that middle space is really scary because you don't know. But I always have felt that you can optimize that middle time by doing things that set you up. So whereas... So when I was away from Yahoo, uh, after I left Yahoo and I was gone for six months, yeah, I traveled. Yeah, I did some humanitarian work like in Haiti and I and I got to really like do some things that were really near and dear to my heart. But I also came home and I was brushing up on my interview skills, on my resume and like LinkedIn. I was figuring out, okay, how do you use Adobe Premiere and how do you use a creative the creative suite? How do you optimize Google Excel sheets and just like the most weirdest mundane small things because those are the small things that somebody else does not want to do and they will hire you to do it and it will hold you over until you're able to find your landing spot and so yeah I've always been someone who I I've I've always been an optimizer of time and I like that that hunger and that drive to always want to learn and to always be more and to always do more has always been ingrained in me and it's something that I even have to this day like I don't chill and I know like people are like no 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 you gotta chill and you can but I also like the idea of knowing that anything and any task and any responsibility that I that is given to me I know how to figure it out because I've taught myself how to figure it out Mm -hmm. and how have you kind of obviously shows that you have this like determination to go after your goals like have you always been that way since like you were younger or did like there was an important moment maybe that kind of changed it all for you like a perspective hmm so twofold I think I've always been that way I've always been a go-getter I've always been independent so I've always known that if I wanted something I was gonna have to get it myself you know I remember when I was little and well little when I was like in middle school and I used to get bullied at school and my mama was like well you gotta learn how to stick up for yourself because you don't have a brother or a sister who can come help you and I can't help you because I'm at work and even though that was obviously in one sphere of of the term it really taught me that sometimes all you have is yourself and it's not like a shade of anybody or your tribe or anything but like sometimes nobody can want something for you more than you want it for yourself Mm -hmm. and so I've always told myself that I can't make the request of other people before I first make the request of myself. I can't be an editor-in-chief of somewhere if I think I'm too good to be the intern. And I've always just been very, very goal and hustle oriented in that because I was like, if you don't focus and do what you need to do, then I don't know why you think that the universe would then reward you for something more. That being said, I do feel like over the last maybe I think two to three years, I've definitely been 
a lot more pushy with the ask. That comes with, I think, time and patience. I've certainly grown in my confidence with myself as a person, but also just with myself as like in this industry and the work that I've done with the Blonde Misfit and the work that I, I do to just amplify black and brown voices. And I think that once you kind of get that innate confidence, it allows you to sort of not necessarily stop being fearful about things, but realize that there's nothing on the other side of, of that fear. In fact, anything that what's on the other side of that fear potentially is a good thing, but you won't know if you don't try. So I still get very much so nervous, you know, before I take stage, before I pitch myself to, for something, before my team is setting something up for me. But I also know that if I don't do it at all, then that's my no. But yeah. the no is what I'm afraid of. So you might as well ask because then at least you would know. <laughs> nothing to lose at that point. It's like, go for exactly. it. Exactly. And I promise you, anything, I would say like mm, 80 to 90% of the things I've ever asked for in life, in some way, shape, or form, I've gotten. May not happen immediately. May not happen the way you want it to. May not happen with who you want it, who you want it with or whatever as far as like talent and opportunities. But it always happened. And it has always set me up for success in the next day. Even just the even just the art of asking is something that is so foreign to people and it's makes a lot of people uncomfortable. That's why you see a lot of people, especially women, we don't negotiate. But when you do it and you step yourself out of those comfort zones, you realize that you're so much stronger than even you give yourself credit for. And you it, take that confidence and it applies and trickles into every other facet of your life. Most definitely. So I kind of want to go into the Blonde Misfit. I know you said you created it when you moved to New York. So what made you come up with the title, the idea, and how did you kind of like start something from the ground up basically? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been blonde since the 10th grade. So I, when I graduated, I was like, I need something to show people that I can write. I was pitching people at Vogue and Elle and people in New York and I was sending them like my student papers. And I was like, this is not, I think what people are supposed to do. Mind you, I didn't have any mentor, any formal mentorship in magazine journalism. So I didn't even know how the people would go about this. And this was at a time when print was still very much so heavy. Like you could still get a job in print and it would be amazing. So I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll just start a digital website and I'll have writing clips on there and I'll just share my thoughts and that's how I'll show them that I can articulate a thought in a, in a coherent way. So I was literally Googling what, how to name a blog. And they had all of these different ideas and examples. And they were like, well, choose, um, choose an adjective that describes you and then choose like uh, a marker, a, a marker of sorts. And it's funny because if you think about it, like that's how you get some of these blog names, like, you know, cupcakes and cupcakes and mimosas and pretty in pink and uh I was like okay well I feel like a strong identifier of me is my is my hair that I'm blonde so blonde and then I was like in a word that I guess identifies me I've, I've always felt like a misfit mm. I've always felt different I've always felt um sort of not necessarily not accepted but just kind of like maybe perhaps misunderstood or very much so a loner in that sense and I was like, you are a brown skin girl with locks who did not intern in New York at all, who was trying to get into fashion. You're a misfit. And so 
that's how we came up with the Blonde Misfit. Um, because the site was really supposed to just chronicle the life and times of what it feels like to be a black girl in fashion. And so that was, I think, the easiest part. Like, I don't, I don't have stories of going back and forth about multiple names and stuff like that. Like, cause once I figured it out, I was like, yeah, this is what I want. Uh, starting it from the ground up was not hard. I think what happened was it got started to get difficult when you want to scale. So starting a website is, is not, is not hard. You know, you can search it online. You can set up on Squarespace, WordPress. I started off on blogger and then eventually you're like, okay, well, I want a little bit more space for the site. So now you're like, okay, should I upgrade? Should I make these changes? The real challenge I think for me then became when I wanted to establish the Blonde Misfit as a credible media outlet, because I'm not trending news. I don't, I don't want to take that beat on. I used to cover trending news and, and my work and I, it's, it's exhaustive. It's very exhaustive. Um, but I also am not fully evergreen because a lot of the things that I talk about are things that are also happening in the day and are pegged to timely things. So establishing that voice and that credibility obviously takes a little bit more than just having words on a site. You have to worry about your layout. You have to worry about your user experience. You want to, you have to worry about your photography. I know that for me, one of the things that I think helped establish me early on was that I really invested in high quality photography. I would take the money that I had and pay a photographer who was not cheap uh, to get these photos so that I could have them for social media. Because I always said, if you look like a fashion editor, they will think you are a fashion editor. And if they think you are a fashion editor, they will invite you to the fashion show. And that logic works. Yeah. Um, you really do have to fake it till you make it sometimes until you're actually there. And so those were the things that kind of were the challenges. Um, now, obviously, it's been close to five years later. And the Blonde Misfit is more than just a website. It's a website. It's a little baby YouTube channel. It's a growing social media presence. It's a hundred thousand on Pinterest. It's um, a podcast. It's ranked in the top 100 fashion and top 100 beauty sites in the world. And it's still not what I want it to be yet. So it's one of those things that, you know, challenges are going to come naturally and you learn, you learn through trial and error. I obviously never anticipated me being a businesswoman in that way, but you learn and you go with the punches and you go with the flow and you look every day at the proud baby that you've put out into the world. Yeah. It's honestly amazing how far you've taken it in such a short amount of time. I know you said also, I saw on Twitter that you also started a newsletter now. So. Oh you- yes, girl. Thank you. Cause I'm not plugging myself enough. Yeah. I got newsletter. Yeah. Go on and subscribe to that newsletter. Yes. How do you kind of like balance doing it all plus your other job in the know? You know, it's, I think I've never, I've never actually had just one job before. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know what it's like. It felt, it feels very foreign to me to have just one job and clock in at nine and clock out at six or whatever. And then like, that's it. I've never known that feeling. Uh, and so I've always been someone who knows how to work with time management and figuring out, okay, so this is what you need to do this day. This is what you need to do this day. I like to use and optimize my time by using like apps that I can schedule certain things out in advance so that I don't have to go through throughout the week and actually be uploading and um, spending time doing that. I also have really 
been a huge investor in just like black talent that I can outsource things that I would normally do myself. But if I have the resources and it's not inconveniencing, why not give that opportunity to another fellow black creative? Um, so using things like Fiverr, like TaskRabbit, using my, my intermediate network, I'm able to put money in the pockets of different uh, creatives who also are able to take off some of the weight from me. I, it's still a thing in progress. And, you know, hopefully after COVID kind of lights up, I would like to be able to do it more consistently to the point that we could have actual like employees again. But in the meantime, you, you know, you do what you got to do with, with what you got to do. And like I said earlier, I'm never going to be so above the work that I don't do the work because this is my baby at the, at the end of the day. And um, so, yeah. And then, you know, utilizing your weekends, utilizing your nights, utilizing your lunch hours or whatever, <laughs> you know, you have to really just be very uh, cognitive of your time. And the same way that I have meetings for in the know um, on my calendar, I block off meetings for you know, interviews, I block it off for scheduling um, and optimizing content. I write, I block off uh, transcribing. I block off just different parts of my day that I need it because if it's on the calendar, I'm going to honor it. Mm -hmm. And obviously COVID-19 and a whole protest and riots and Black Lives Matter movement has been changing everything, but has your time working from home kind of been different? Do you think it's been better, worse, or... Yeah, I mean, it's been nice because there are so many things that I wanted to do in my home that I never got to do because I was in the city and then usually I would have a work event or something related afterwards and then I would, wouldn't get home until like, I don't know, close to like 10, 11 o'clock that like on most days. And then on top of that, then you're working on schoolwork and then you're, I got the puppies and so they got it. I got to make sure that they're all good. and everything else. So at least being home, I have time in my day where I can change and rearrange things. I can try to find cute backdrops that will later, later serve as places for photography and video work. I can like log off at six and immediately jump into my work versus that hour, hour and a half commute that I have home. And so those things have actually been a blessing. I'm really, it's uh, like when I think about COVID, it's obviously very bittersweet because mm -hmm. I am saddened by the idea that so many people have, have had to perish and suffer as a result. But I also do know that the industry for fashion and beauty, but then also like just the world in general was on burnout mode yeah. and we needed to slow down and we needed to restore order of some sort. And I really do also believe that the Black Lives Matter protests and the resurgence of that conversation it would have still been impactful but it wouldn't have hit the same if we all weren't home and forced to see what's happening to us yeah so i it's sad and i obviously don't wish for it for that to have happened but i also know that uh there's good coming out of all of this mm -hmm. And so where do you kind of see yourself taking your career in even just the next year or the next two years? Oh, man. I don't know, because every time I write down these five-year things, I look <laughs> back in the five years, and I ain't done none of them. I've, I've done, like, a whole bunch of other stuff, but then I'm yeah. like, oh, I didn't do that one thing. Um, I don't know, honestly. I mean, it's 
it has always piqued my interest to think, well, what if I ever just went on off on my own full time without without uh, also lending myself into corporation? I've been asked that multiple times if I would ever do such, but I do also believe that while it is beautiful to be able to, to determine and shape your own voice with your own work, that there is still a lot of work that needs to be done inside of these corporations and inside of media and in spaces where you can really evoke change on a bigger global, global scale. I don't put any caps or, on, or any limits on the, things that I, on the things that I will do or the things that I'll accomplish. I mean, if you had told me even in December that I would have the, a newsletter and a podcast, I would have been like, you are crazy because those, <laughs> both of those things were things that I had been saying for years. I was like, well, maybe we should do it. Maybe we shouldn't. And then I didn't. And then as soon as I decided, then I started just throwing everything up in there. That's me. I'm either all or nothing. So like <laughs> we have, we have moments of peace and then it's just like total chaos. And then <laughs> yeah. I can see. Um, so yeah, I mean, the only thing I've ever said for myself is that wherever I am in that time period, I just want to continue to be doing the things that I love to do, blessing the people who I want to create and serve for, and just having full peace and uh, happiness while doing that. Mm -hmm. And for maybe any students or young emerging journalists that are listening to this podcast at the moment, mm -hmm. um, if, is there any advice you would kind of give to them about maybe when they're just getting started or how to chase after those dreams, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, I'm, I think two things. One is know your why. Mm -hmm. That is different for every single person on this earth, because I do believe that your why is connected to your God given purpose. And so you have to ask and figure out for yourself what you think that is and uh, take context clues so that you know the direction that you're going in. You need to understand what your why is because your why is a thing that will keep you grounded. Your why is a thing that will keep you innovative and hungry. Your why is a thing that will keep you up until like I was this morning until 3 a.m. transcribing an interview because you're just so excited to put it out into the world even though you're tired. Your why keeps you going, but your why also is a thing that picks you up when the world tells you that you can't do it. And the reality is it is very hard to be a Black journalist. It is really hard to be in media right now. It is hard to be black right now. It is hard to work in fashion and beauty and in many of these industries that as a result of COVID are gonna be changed forever to the point that we don't even know what it's gonna look like when we all get outside again. And so you have to really develop that love for what it is that you do and that tenacity to keep fighting. And then my second point is just do the work. Mm -hmm. When I talk to people, a lot of people ask me, um, Jamee, how, how can I be a writer like you? And I, and I say, well, show me your portfolio and they don't have one. I don't understand how you want to be a writer, but you don't write or, you know, and, <laughs> it, and it's interesting because I think a lot of people have been coddled by the glamorization of what it looks like on social media. And don't get me wrong. There are amazing perks. I'm very blessed. I thank God every single day for the life that I have got to create. I've, I've been given that I can create the things that I want to create, but it is hard work. People do not see that. People don't see the long hours, the late nights. They don't see the sacrifice friendships, the sacrifice relationships, the money. Mm -hmm. um, the first, I'm in year five of the Blonde Misfit. In the first four years, I didn't make a single penny. So people don't understand and see that.
that. And obviously, like, you may not want to start your own thing. But even as a journalist, journalism don't pay like that. Like, it can. <laughs> but you, but that re, the idea of thinking that you're going to come out of college and then, like, make a whole bunch of money from the jump is, I'm not going to say it's not going to happen because it, it has happened for people. But you have to really love what you do. You have to love, love, love it. Like, all in, like, to the point you would you would want to do it for free. Yeah don't do it for free or if you do pay your dues do it for free for a little bit but then start to charge your worth because we out here walking in our worth people but you have to love what you do but you have to do the work there are a lot of people out here who don't know how to do the simple things of journalism and want to be journalists and the thing is instagram could go down tomorrow what what where's your work at where's your portfolio at what what can you show that will sustain the reputation that you've built for yourself if people can't see all the smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really what's important. I think that's what a lot of people are missing. But if you really have that, and if you just put your head down and you just really grind and focus, you, you, you will be okay. Mm -hmm. And I know today you just released another article where you interviewed Queen Latifah. So I, oh, yeah. I wanna know <laughs> what has been your maybe, I'll talk about that one a little little bit as well, but what has been your favorite article you've written or person you've interviewed? Oh, girl, that's hard because we're going on almost a decade's worth of content. Um, <laughs> uh, I think my favorite, okay, so I, I think I, okay, I have two. So um, I wrote them both last year for a different outlet. One I wrote on the power that women were reclaiming with the do-rag. I wrote that for Zora, the Black publication with Medium. And I loved that piece because, you know, the do-rag is such a central and, and like vital thing in Black beauty culture that it's so amazing to see how women have really made it like such a gender neutral thing and how we use articles of clothing to exude so much of our, of our identity. And it was, really really just a beautiful way for me to also highlight some some like smaller known brands that are were popping off on instagram at the time and were really just kind of doing it for the culture and i was like yeah this is really awesome um my other story was the piece that i think a lot of people who recently have started following me know me for which was the business of fashion piece I did last year, exploring why black beauty editors work twice as hard as their white counterparts. Yes. That story was wild because I pitched it. Um, I was tipsy at happy hour and I told <laughs> my boo, I was like, I'm going to send them this pitch idea. He was like, go ahead. I was like, I'm really going to do it. He was like, go ahead. And I did it. And then I woke up the next morning like, oh shit, what did I do? <laughs> um, and sure enough they came back they was like yeah let's do this they were like okay send us like a treatment of like who you would want to interview what you think about it and it was really amazing the support so the support for the story both internally as well as externally was great um it really kind of i think put me on the map for people because business of fashion is you know top three yeah um fashion publications in the world and I was really really excited and blessed to know that although i could have written a, a story on business or business implications that the piece that I got to write for that site was around the invisible labor that exists for black people. And even though that piece was pegged to beauty, it really is applicable to any and everything. 
you know, and um, I was really, really, I've been so proud of those pieces. They've both been so helpful in my career, but they also have allowed me to, I think, put it out there into the world that there's still so much more work that needs to be done um, in the exploration of these topics. But yeah, I think those would be my two favorite pieces, but it's hard. Like, <laughs> I really, I can't, I wouldn't even give you, I can't even give you a ballpark of how many stories I've written. And um, since I was 18, I don't, I don't even know. It's crazy. Okay, so my last question is, if there was one thing or a statement you could tell your younger self after everything that you've learned in your career so far, what would it be? You're dope. Point blank period. And I would have done it like, and it's funny because I think it's only been like the last couple of years that I've learned that that statement does not have to be arrogance. Mm -hmm. It is just simply understanding that you are not going to shy away from taking up the space in the world that you rightfully deserve. It's mm -hmm. like if someone get, if someone had $5,000 in a bag for you and they wanted to give it to you and you're like, no, I can't take that. And you're, they're like, it's yours. It's like, it's your money. And you're like, no, no, I can't. I can't. Well, now you look foolish because the person is here to give it to you. That's exactly what the world is. The world is giving us the space to to walk in and to hold our own, but we don't want it. We we're we're afraid of it. And a lot of my younger years, I think, were spent around figuring out what does everyone else want of Jamee? What does everyone else? Uh, how do they think of her? How do they see her? What makes her cool to them? What does this like? I I tied so much of my self confidence, my self worth, to what other people thought, and I first of all, would get very sick because when you base your self-worth around man's expectation, you will never be happy because man's expectation is always fluctuating. It always fluctuates. It's never stable. You will chase an endless game of nothings. And as soon as I was able to realize in a couple of different ways that I really can't determine what somebody else feels about me. I really can't determine how someone else chooses to respond. You know, even Jesus had haters, like Beyonce got haters, like people who really just mind their business and drink their water, like have haters. And mm -hmm. when you realize that, and you realize that just sometimes you're just not gonna fully connect with 100% with with people, you realize that like, okay, that's fine. I can still support you and love you from over the year. You stay over there, I'm over here, but like, I'm still dope no matter what. I'm dope whether I get on your list or not. I'm dope whether I get your shout out or not. I'm dope whether I have 8,000 followers or 800,000 followers. I, I'm dope nonetheless. And uh, that is because I know the work that I do. I know the quality of the work that I do. I know the passion that it takes. And I know that not everybody can do what I do. So that's what I would tell myself. And because I should have really had some more big dick, big dick energy when I was younger. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I, I did but I should have, honestly. <laughs> and where can everyone find you on social media, your website, list all of that stuff so people can follow you? Yeah, most definitely. So the website is theblondemisfit.com. That is blonde with an E. Um, I'm also at the Blonde Misfit on both Instagram and Twitter. And if you type The Blonde Misfit on YouTube, you can find me as well. Uh, I was still trying to figure out how to do the channel names, but you gotta have a certain amount of subscribers, I guess, before you can do that. Also, you can find me on Apple, uh, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, anywhere you listen to your podcast, uh, The Blonde Misfit. Hmm? Anchor as well. 
Oh yeah, Anchor, yeah, Anchor is our anchor, right? So you can go um, on anchor.fm backslash Misfit, and you can uh, listen to all of the good stuff there. And then also if you go to the Blonde Misfit site, you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. Thank you for tuning in to Black Fat Fashion. You know you can always reach out via social media or email with your questions or ideas. Make sure you give us a follow at Black Fat Fashion, as well as my personal page at Ayana Ish. With love from your BFF.